postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. A world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up white flag and saying, Ah! It's all the secular people's fault and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic campaign. How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism Redesigned. Hey everyone, it is Pastor Marcus here, and I want to welcome you to another episode of the Story Church Podcast. An exciting, exciting, exciting day today because I get to announce for the first time on the podcast that the new Bible study set, The Road, A Journey Through the Narrative of Scripture, is now available for purchase online. So stoked, you guys. It released last week. Uh, I believe it was on Thursday. And I was honestly kind of freaking out because I was like, you know, no one's going to see this thing and no one's going to get it because everybody's talking about Trump and Biden and the presidential election. Um, But you know what? It's gone really well so far. And I want to thank every single one of you who have snagged a copy of The Road. Um, yeah, look, really, really appreciate it. And I know and I trust that it's going to be an amazing, amazing resource for you as you seek to minister to and communicate the heart of God to millennials, to Zeds, the young generations that surround us, very deeply impacted by postmodernism and uh, all these different sort of cultural trends that have taken us so far away from the categorizations that were familiar in in church and Christianity, sort of the old school Western world. We're so far removed from that, guys. We're so far removed from that that we just we need to we need to change our language, we need to change our frameworks, we need to change our approach. And the road is a big part of that. And it's been a really big part of my life now for the last five years as I've been working on it using it, studying with people, and then I'd go back and tweak it, and then I'd study with more people and then go back and tweak it. I used it to lead secrets classes at church. I used it on personal one-on-one studies uh, with people in church and also with people who were post-church, very secular. And it was just a massive blessing, no matter who, (laughs) no matter who I sat down with. And it was amazing because the road, it's not really a product of Marcus's mind. Uh, and, and I really hope that you understand that the road is not a product of, of my own sort of personal um, approach to scripture. The road is a product of multiple minds. It's a product of so many people over the last five years that I have studied with and journeyed with. And as they ask me questions and as we wrestled through the text and, and as we went through the lessons, I was just typing them up on Word and I'd print them out, hand them out to my to my contacts and they would read them and then they'd come back with these questions and saying hey this doesn't make any sense or what about this or what about that and then I would go back and I would edit (laughs) the whole lesson Um, and then I'd use it again and again and again and again until finally I got to the point where I was editing it less and less I was almost not editing it at all anymore and I realized okay I think you know five years in (laughs) lots of experimentation I think I've finally arrived at a place that is is good. Now, look, could it be better? Of course, absolutely. 
Uh, but, you know, if you aim for perfection, you'll never do anything in life and you'll never put anything out there. And so I decided I'm at a healthy place now. Let's make this happen. And over the years, as, as I use it more and as, as, as cultural trends come and go and as things shift, uh, I'm sure that new editions will be released as well. But really excited because, guys, this is probably, you know, the only existing Bible study source that is extremely uh, focused on reframing the narrative of scripture for emerging post-church generations and uh, and that's that's huge that's huge and again it's not simply a product of my own mind but the product of multiple minds multiple beautiful people that I've studied the Bible with over the last five years and um, all of their insights and, and, and frameworks have really made this what it is. So if you are looking for a Bible study set to revive your own personal spirituality and you're kind of like, you know, you're tired of the same old, same old stuff that you can just pick up at the, at the shop um, or you're wanting a source that you can share with your friends, with your family, um, with young people in your life in church uh, or perhaps even... Um, you are, uh, you know, involved in sharing your faith with post-church people in your life, you know, post-modern people in your life. And, and you want something that is going to be um, more geared and framed toward them, then definitely, definitely get your hands on the road. It's available on Amazon. Uh, you can hop on Amazon now. Uh, no matter where you are in the world, if Amazon is available, you can get a copy of The Road on there. Um, and you can also get the PDF reprint licenses online. Now, I have had a few people email me and ask, hey, is it possible to get the PDF version of The Road uh, just for me? So not a reprint license, just a PDF version that I can just print in my own house just for me. Uh, and uh, the simple answer to that question is, if you just want, um, just for you, just to explore it on your own, get the print version of the book. That's that's what it's actually designed for. It's designed for you to go through it on your own or maybe with one, possibly two friends, you can go through the book on your own. It's designed for that. The PDF option is really just a bulk option. So if someone's like, look, I'm in a, I'm in a micro group and we've got five people, um, you can each go on Amazon and order your own copy of the book or you can shipping together in order to PDF reprints and then you can just print them out and go through them one by one. Um, it's a little bit easier when you have a bulk order like that to get a PDF reprint. Uh, or if you're in a small group of about 15 people or you wanna teach a Sabbath school or a class, a Bible class in, in your local you know, high school or whatever and you've got you know, up to 30 students, um, you could go on Amazon and order 30 copies of the book for sure. Uh, but, you know, the reprint license is also available to make things a little easier um, and, and maybe accessible for you. So if it works for you, then definitely take a look at the PDF reprint license. Um, if you think it's easier for you to just get the book, get the book. But the PDF reprint license is definitely a, um, a bulk ordering option just to make things a little bit simpler. And the upfront cost is, is a lot less as well because, you know, ordering 30 books will probably run you close to 800 bucks. Um, whereas on, on the PDF reprint license, it's half that price. So anyways, um, yeah, check it out guys. And if you have explored it and you've gone through it and you've enjoyed it, please, 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 please 
leave a review on Amazon because that really helps uh, get the book noticed when there's lots of reviews. I've had three reviews left so far. Thank you so much. Uh, you amazing people who have left those reviews. You guys are awesome. And um, yeah, so if you, if you want to share some more, just hop on Amazon and, and pop in a review. Uh, I'd really, really, really appreciate it. All right, guys, let's go ahead and get into the next episode of Adventism for a post-church generation. We dealt with some heavy stuff last week. And we are now going to go into some heavier stuff. <laughs> um, but I want to answer a question first, all right? I want to answer a question. Uh, because last week we talked about the Calvinist, um, the Calvinist heritage within Protestant Christianity. This is the, the whole idea uh, or the whole theology that's built on the timeless nature of God. He can't experience before and after. So therefore, everything that happens has to be preordained by him. He doesn't. He can't learn anything because that would presuppose that there was a time he didn't know, and that's before and after. This is a very Greek concept of timelessness, and and really, if you were to enter into this timeless realm with God, um, with within this sort of Greek understanding of timelessness, what you're doing is you're entering into a sort of a frozen state. Uh, uh, where everything is basically an eternal now, right? There's an eternal moment of now where everything is simultaneous and that God somehow inhabits this frozen eternal now. Uh, but there's some deep, deep philosophical challenges with that, especially as it relates to Scripture, um, because it is actually philosophically impossible for, a, for God to be in a frozen eternal now outside of time and to also be involved in history in time. And so that's, you know, again, probably a bit heavy, and I don't want to get too geeky here, but just know that, um, and if you want to think about it and hash it out, and you're sort of a nerd like me, then go for it, but within a frozen, eternal, timeless now, at least as Parmenides and Plato would have described it or defined it, uh, it's not possible to also be involved in history because history is before and after. And so in, within the Calvinist tradition, this sort of timeless view of God is at the foundation of how um, God is understood, right? This sort of Greek timeless view. And so because God can't experience before and after, then history doesn't impact God. Um, and so therefore, the only logical conclusion is that God impacts history. It's a one-dimensional or one-directional impact, and he impacts history by actually scripting it detail by detail so that everything that unfolds is merely the will of God being be unfolding. It's, it's not, there's no freedom. There's no freedom of will. Uh, it's just God's will to everything and everything. He's like the cosmic movie script writer who has scripted history, and it just unfolds according to his plan. Um, because again, he can't, he can't be impacted by history. So there's nothing happening in history that God looks through time and says, oh, that's going to happen. Because again, that would defy or go against the platonic understanding of timelessness. And this involves more disturbingly the idea that the love that we have for God is actually meaningless to God. And so again, because history doesn't impact God in this view, then when you are when, when you declare your love for him, when you worship him, when you live a life of, of thankfulness to him, none of that really means anything to him. 
And in the same way, when you hate God and when you um, rebel against Him and when you reject Him, He's not really bothered by that either because He cannot be impacted, right? He doesn't take anything in. Um, and so he's just this raw power who, who is, he's raw output with no input. Um, and so basically you end up within the Calvinist tradition with this picture of God that is fundamentally tyrannical. It's fundamentally disturbing. Um, and yeah, <laughs> you develop a whole theology based on that. And ultimately what you have is a very scary, detached, unemotional, stoic type of God uh, who, yeah, I don't know what else to say other than that. So, <laughs> so we explored a bit of that last week and then we talked about Arminianism's response to this, um, which was uh, originated by Jacobus Arminius and then really popularized by John Wesley, also his brother Charles. They wrote some awesome hymns um, and, and they wanted to respond to this by going to scripture and, and, and mining from scripture the concept of free will. And of course, you see in scripture that God is deeply involved in history, right? He's deeply involved in history. He's always there. He's always showing up. He's always doing something. Um, and so if God is deeply involved in history, then this idea that he's sort of detached in an eternal frozen now doesn't, you know, really work. And so for the Arminians, they were like, okay, so... Whatever's going on here, God's clearly involved in history. Man clearly has free will. Uh, and so, yeah, like that's a totally different picture from the Calvinists. And so Arminianism basically developed this idea um, that God is love and that he loves everyone. And this is another thing I want you guys to understand. Within the Calvinist tradition, Jesus didn't really die for everyone. You know, we say that, oh, Jesus died for everyone. God loves everyone. Please understand this, you guys. Please understand this. Within the Calvinist tradition, God doesn't love everyone. And Jesus didn't die for everyone. God only loves those who he has elected from before the foundation of the world to go to heaven. And Jesus only died for those elect. All right. Anyone else who's outside of the elect from God's inscrutable will, uh, he pre-chose, who was not going to be in heaven. And there's different interpretations of that within Calvinism, by the way. I don't want you guys to think that all Calvinists are the same brush. There are different levels of Calvinism. Um, and so some will say that God deliberately determined who's going to hell. And others will say that God didn't deliberately determine who's going to hell. He simply chose who's going to heaven and everyone else passively by default goes to hell. Which isn't much better, <laughs> in my opinion. But anyways, yeah, just so you understand, it's, it's not all one brush. But um, essentially, this, this tradition really holds to the idea of what's known within theological circles as um, conditional election uh, or limited atonement. And, and what this means is that what Jesus did on the cross is limited not, it's not for all humanity. It's limited for a particular class that God has pre-selected to go to heaven. Um, and it's not for everyone. And so Arminians rejected this, right? Arminianism rejected this fully and said, no, 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 no. The salvation is for everyone. Jesus died for everyone. God loves everyone. And so you have two totally different stories. And of course, we saw last week how in the Arminian tradition, um, this perspective of God's love never really developed into a cohesive um, narrative of scripture. It never really became a, a whole picture view of scripture. 
And so the movement itself has sort of splintered in many different directions. And um, some are just focused on holiness. Uh, and so you see this in, you know, sort of the Nazarene or Wesleyan churches. And some are focused on um, spiritual gifts. And so you see this in the Pentecostal traditions with, you know, the speaking in tongues and prophesying. Um, others are focused on uh, assurance of salvation. And so you see this mostly in the Southern Baptists with um, once saved, always saved. And that's kind of like their, the thing they, they harp on about a lot. So it just kind of went in, in lots of different directions. And ultimately, when you um, attend these churches, you, you don't really get theological depth from them. Uh, the United Methodist Church, perhaps, I would say, has some 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 pretty cool theological, you know, depth that they can that they can explore, but it's not at the same level as what you would find in the Calvinist church, not, not even close. Um, and so the, the question that I wanted to address is, you know, some would ask, hey, you started this whole series by saying, we don't have to put other churches down in order to make ourselves feel important, but aren't you putting other churches down um, by explaining all this stuff and then saying, here we are, the Adventists, and we're better than everyone else because of the reasons that I'm about to explain in this episode. And the answer is, that's not what's happening here at all. So let me make this really, really clear. I actually really admire um, many, many Calvinists. I don't agree with their picture of God, but there are Calvinists who I deeply admire I appreciate their worldview. I appreciate their perspectives. Preston Sprinkle is one of them who's got um, an awesome podcast that I really enjoy listening to. Francis Chan is another who is one of the guys that I listen to the most when it comes to church culture and, and mission and discipleship. Um, his book, Letters to the Church, is just absolutely mind-blowing. So good, you guys. I highly recommend it. Um, so Francis Chan, Stephen Platt, I mean, there's just a whole slew of them. Um, I'm pretty sure Kyle Eidelman is also a, um, a Calvinist, and I really like Kyle Eidelman. Um, and, and within the Arminian denomination or within the Arminian tradition, there are voices that I really admire as well. So William Lane Craig is one of those. He's a Christian apologist. And uh, I also really, really admire the work of John Lennox, who's also... Um, an Arminian. And of course, there's Billy Graham. Like, I think I've listened to every Billy Graham sermon <laughs> on the planet. So my point is, you know, I really do admire people from other denominations and, and I, I love the contributions that they bring to the Christian conversation. And that's very different from old school Adventist sectarianism that's like, no, they're all Babylon and you don't read anything unless it's written by Ellen White and all those people are just, you know, uh, they're just full of error. Like, I, I do not vibe with that at all, you guys. I think that that mentality is cultish and bizarre, and I would like to rebuke it right now in the name of humility <laughs> as a thing that we as a church have to fundamentally reject and repent of. It is, it is so gross, you guys. It is so gross. Um, I can't stand that. And so there is a big difference between, you know, going around saying, all these churches, you know, they're all evil and they're all full of the wine of Babylon and all that really hyperbolic and violent rhetoric um, and just really knocking people down. There's a big difference between that and saying, look, 
Um, there are theological differences that I think we as Adventists have a lot to offer in the conversation, but we still admire and we still respect and we still honor the contributions that are brought to us by people in these different denominations. And I, and I think that that's okay, you know? So I just wanted to clarify that by explaining what we see in Calvinism and what we see in Arminianism and the tensions there, we're, we're merely describing the, the milieu, we're describing the landscape and seeing where we as Adventists fit within that landscape. But I'm not knocking people down and saying, you know, Calvinists are just absolutely terrible people and, you know, all Babylon. Because to be quite honest, many of them are absolutely amazing, mind-blowing, God-fearing people that I admire. And it's the same with the Arminian camp. And, you know, their churches that I've attended have been a huge blessing in my life. So, no, I am not a sectarian at all. But I do think it's important, like I said, to recognize the differences because I do fundamentally believe that as a tribe, as a faith tribe, we Adventists have something to offer the conversation of God that no one else is saying. And so let's, let's go ahead and dive into that because this introduction has been super long and this episode is going to be super long already anyways. Um, if you are listening to this and you didn't hear the previous episode, oh man, you're not going to appreciate this episode at all. So make sure you, you stop and you go back to the previous episode because it will be so hard to appreciate what I'm sharing here if you haven't heard the previous one at the least. I mean, definitely listen to part one through whatever. I forget what episode we're up to now. Listen to all the episodes anyway is the point I'm making before you get to this one. But at the very least, if you're not going to listen to all the other ones, listen to the previous one before listening to this one. Okay, so we ended off last week by saying enter Adventism. That's kind of where we, <laughs> that's kind of where I, I let, left you guys hanging. Enter Adventism. And, and because what we did was we had explored the Calvinist worldview, the story that it tells, and then we explored the Arminian worldview, the story that it tells, and the tension that this leaves for people who are searching for God. You basically have two options. You have the Calvinist worldview, which is very deep theological narrative that interacts with lots of profound questions, but that also presents a very dictatorial, tyrannical, scary picture of God. Um, and then, so if you don't want that scary picture of God, you can go to the Arminian churches where you get the love of God, but you get a very often shallow theological experience because there is no such thing as a, an Arminian systematic theology. It doesn't exist. And so you basically, you can pick scary God, deep theology, or loving God, shallow theology. And basically, like, which option do you prefer? And that's, that's what is out there in the landscape of um, Protestant faith. And it is within this landscape that I want to introduce where I see the narrative of Adventism having deep existential significance. So, like the Arminian movement, or the Arminian Wesleyan world, it, Adventism also shares this passion for a renewed understanding of the heart of God and his government and, and how that's explored through scripture, right? And so that passion, that foundation uh, really is at the forefront of the great controversy theme, which is Adventism's middle story. So remember we talked about last week how Calvinists have a big story and a little story and Arminians have a big story, middle story. And little story, and that the middle story in Arminianism 
is the aesthetic theme, as John Wesley described it, right? It's the, the battle between good and evil and how evil existed in a free will universe governed by a God of love. Those questions aren't really necessary in Calvinism. But I'm not going to explain that anymore because I did that last time. So Arminians have this middle story. And Adventists, who flow mostly from the Arminian tradition, also have a middle story, and it's the Great Controversy. And so this theme of the Great Controversy, it not only answers questions related to the origin of sin and suffering in the universe, but it also vindicates God's character from the charges made against him by Satan. And it's in this theme, um, by the way, it's, it's raining a lot today. Uh, so if you guys hear rain in the background, <laughs> try to ignore it because it's going to be raining here all day. And I actually think we're going to have thunder later on. So this might be the best time to record. Hopefully you don't get too much you know, noise in the background. Um, but where was I? Yeah, so this theme, which emphasizes the loving character of God over against the presence of evil and suffering, that's where Adventist theology finds its heartbeat. Right, that's that's the heartbeat of Advent. The great controversy is the heartbeat of Adventist theology, and so what Adventism then did was it took the love of God glasses from Arminianism, and it embarked on this journey of rediscovering the love of God in every single theme of Scripture, and so this makes Adventism unique in the Arminian world because unlike the Arminian world that doesn't really have a systematic theology that explores all of Scripture through the love of God, Adventism aimed to do just that. It aimed to discover a panoramic, holistic view of all of Scripture through the glasses of God's love. But now the question is how, right? How did Adventism do that which the rest of the Arminian world hadn't successfully done? Now, tracing the history of that is probably, you know, not probably, it is out of the scope of this podcast episode and also my book, the companion book for this series, Weird Evolution, because it's just massive. Um, but... Here's the thing I'm going to say. Uh, the key, the key that made the difference with Adventism and others who didn't kind of go down this track is this. Are you guys ready? Drum roll. I don't have a drum. Um, the sanctuary. That's the key. That's the key. Now, some of you might be rolling your eyes like, are you serious? That boring doctrine with all the charts and the furniture. How in the world did that make any difference? Um, but here's the thing, that's not really what I'm talking about. So just hang with me here. In the sanctuary, early Adventists discovered the key to applying the love of God theme to the entirety of Scripture, not just the parts associated with individual justification or holiness, which basically is where the Arminian movement left, uh, left off. Um, in addition, the sanctuary was foundational in moving Adventist thought from the timeless God concept present in both Calvinism and Arminianism to a God-in-time view that radically impacted the way in which Adventists think of and relate to God in his relationship with man. And so as a result, Adventism began to revolve around one central theme in Scripture, God's desire to be with people. And when I say that statement there, God's desire to be with people, that is sanctuary. Okay, so I'm not talking about a building. I'm not talking about charts. I'm not talking about furniture. I'm talking about a posture, a divine posture. God's desire to be with people, that is the essence of the sanctuary. All right. Now, Ellen White put it this way. 
Um, the sanctuary in heaven is the very center of Christ's work in behalf of men. It concerns every soul living upon the earth. It opens to view the plan of redemption, bringing us down to the very close of time and revealing the triumphant issue of the contest between righteousness and sin. Now, this statement alone reveals the depth of Adventist thought in relation to the sanctuary. God's love and desire to be with people, right? Sanctuary, the sanctuary posture of God became our presupposition. So go back to the previous episode, we told you presuppositions. So for Arminianism, it was the, you know, God is love is the presupposition. Um, for Calvinism, it was the timeless view of God, which was the presupposition. For Adventists, it's God's desire to be with people, his sanctuary posture, his sanctuary nature. That is the presupposition. And through the sanctuary, Adventists discovered the plan of redemption from before the foundation of the world to the very close of time. So it strings the whole story of Scripture together. So the focus of this story isn't really, and here's a key, here's a key, the focus of this story in, in Adventist understanding isn't really man's salvation, but God's character, His glory. The sanctuary unveils the battle between good and evil, that's the middle story, and God's eventual triumph over sin, not through coercion or sheer power, but through the revelation of His character of love. Now, if you're feeling right now, you're listening to this and you're like, okay, 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 it's, it's not all coming together, but I, I see where you're headed, then don't worry, it, it'll come together soon. Um, but here's what Ellen White said, the subject of the sanctuary opened to view a complete system of truth connected and harmonious. And that's what the Armenian movement was missing. Now remember, as I mentioned earlier, or in the previous episode, the Armenian movement never moved beyond the timeless view of God. They just, in, in, they just basically said, hey, God is love in Scripture. We're going to introduce free will because we see that in Scripture too, and we're going to go from there. But because they didn't get rid of the timeless view of God, I think, my personal opinion, maybe, maybe I can research this some more, but my personal opinion is that that never gave them the impetus or the foundation to really develop a holistic theology because there was an inherent incoherence uh, within that worldview already. Um, I could be wrong about that, but, you know, that's just, that's just what I think. But for Adventism, the sanctuary reveals the love of God in a way that transcends our own local world and forms a part in some mysterious way of the heavenly realm. A sanctuary which can be best defined as God's meeting place with man because he wants to dwell among them, right? If you think of Exodus 25, 8, when God first instructed Israel to build a sanctuary, why, right? Because he wants to dwell among them. And so this sanctuary is then a shadow of one in heaven, which means that in heaven, before the foundation of the world, the plan of redemption, which is revealed uh, in the sanctuary, was made, and through it, God has communicated His eternal desire to dwell with us. And so what am I saying there? What I'm saying is, if God communicates to the people of Israel, build me a sanctuary so I may dwell among you, but that sanctuary is a shadow of something that's in heaven, something that's transcendent, something that is, is, is up there rather than just merely down here, then that means that God's desire to be with His people didn't begin in Exodus 25 eight. God's desire to be with people is eternal. God's desire to be with us is a eternal posture. It's His heart. It's His nature. And the sanctuary in heaven reflects the fact that God's desire to be with people and God's redemptive plan for people is way bigger and transcends our own local planet. It is actually a part of His nature. It is part of His heart. 
So for Adventists, this means that God's love and grace didn't just appear in our space-time realm at the cross. They have been with us all along and continue with us even now. And it's only through this eternal, ever-present love that Scripture can be properly understood because God has always been sanctuary. God has always wanted to be with. God has always wanted to dwell with. God has always wanted to hang out with. This is God's nature. He has a sanctuary posture. So everything in reality must be re-read through this lens of an eternal sanctuary God. In other words... The sanctuary became to Adventists the key by which the Arminian worldview could finally be harmonized into one whole story approach to Scripture that connected all of its parts in a page-by-page revelation of the matchless love of God. And it is this single phenomenon that makes Adventism unique. So, creation takes on a whole new meaning. It's an act of space-time love. Even the very creation of time itself, at least the way in which we experience it as human beings, is an act of love, an idea foreign to the classical theism that undergirds Calvinist thought and continued to impact Arminian thought. Time to Adventists was created by God in a specific way to facilitate both our development and relationship with Him. And so under this view, the Sabbath becomes more than a mere moral command. It is the day in time, in history, where God's love and our temporal realm collide in a very special way. The law of God in this view is a reflection of His character of love. It is not arbitrary, but it's the love parameters upon which life was designed in order for love to flourish. And you can't abolish this law as though it's somehow problematic. But what he does in the New Covenant is he writes this law in our heart as part of the process of restoring us to the image of love, the parametric design of love in which he originally created us. The covenants, right? The history of Israel and the church, the gospel, the gifts of the spirit, including the gift of prophecy, the health message, the 1260, 2300 days of Daniel, the pre-advent judgment, the three angels' messages, the mark of the beast, the call to come out of Babylon, the remnant church, the second coming, the millennium, the great white throne judgment, the new Jerusalem, the annihilation of the wicked. All of it forms part of this whole Bible story that reveals bit by bit the unutterable love of God. And so for Adventists, the gospel doesn't actually begin in Bethlehem, it begins in Eden, and it flows through history into the final consummation of all things. And this is a deep and beautiful aspect of Adventist thought. So while many in in the evangelical world, to be more precise, appeal to the cross as the central place where the love of God is revealed, Adventists appeal to all of scripture all of it is god with us it affirms his eternal love in every theme including daniel revelation and of course the adventist view of non-eternal hell and the complete eradication of sin is yet another outflow of this sanctuary god is love narrative the investigative judgment too i mean i'm not going to go into that a lot here um i got a book on that if you want to read it you can read it But the investigative judgment, which has been the subject of lots of criticism and debate, is about one thing, God's transparency. God doesn't judge based on his all-knowingness. Rather, he judges out of love. His judgment is crystal clear. 
everyone can observe his decisions. Everyone can see that God is fair and just and loving. And here's the thing. Within Calvinist theology, God, the, the investigative judgment makes zero sense because God does whatever he wants. And God is not impacted by history. He impacts history and nobody can question him. And so within Calvinist theology, if you say to a Calvinist, hey, you know, in the judgment, God is transparent and he opens up, you know, to the intelligences and the universe and blah, blah, blah. A Calvinist will simply reply and say, God doesn't need to expose himself that way. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. We just have to bow down and accept it, you know. And this is a very, this would make sense within a Calvinist worldview. But Adventists are not Calvinists. Adventists are Arminians. And so we believe that the love of God, part of God's love, is expressed in His transparency. That He opens Himself up to be known, to be understood, to be investigated. That He has nothing to hide. That He doesn't govern the universe like Mao Zedong, or like Stalin, or like Lenin, or like Hitler. But that God actually governs the universe entirely in love, in a sanctuary posture that brings him into deep intimacy and friendship with created beings. And you can't have deep intimacy and friendship if you are hiding stuff or if you are telling people, hey, don't ask me any questions. I do whatever I want whenever I want. Now, are there aspects or moments in time in which God will say, hey, just do what I said? Of course. And we trust him like we would trust our parents. And they, could, they don't always explain everything and, and we have to trust. But that's not the modus operandi. That's not the ethic. That's not the posture that God eternally has for all time. He wants to be transparent. He wants to be clear. He wants to be close to us. That's the sanctuary nature of God. And so once you have this sanctuary nature, the sanctuary posture of God, now you have an entirely different God who relates to humanity in an entirely different way. And this gives you a totally different understanding of Scripture. It unfolds in a significantly different way. And, and to begin with, it, you know, the timeless sort of platonic view of God is completely incompatible with the sanctuary God. Right. So this doctrine... Uh, just going back to this whole sort of IJ investigative judgment thing, it, it answers questions about God's judgment and the fairness of his government that other Arminian movements failed to answer. And, and, and this is deeply important, especially in the modern age and our affinity and passion for social justice, that the investigative judgment is really, in a sense, it is, it is divine social justice. It is cosmic justice. That's what we're seeing in the investigative judgment. Now, yes, historically as a church, we've had a bunch of legalists and perfectionists who've taken this doctrine and done all kinds of harm. And my message to the Adventists who are still harping on about that is, guys, we have to move on. All right? We have to move on. We can't be a victim of legalists forever. We can't play the victim card. I've been damaged by legalism. All right? I've been damaged by last generation theology. I have an anxiety disorder to this day that was induced by last generation theology and perfectionism and a real negative, toxic view of the investigative judgment. All right? I had to go on medication. I had to see a therapist. So don't say to me, oh, we got to throw this out because it's anti-gospel. Because it's not anti-gospel. At some point in our journey, we have to say, all right, people misused this. People did damage with this. But we're not going to remain victims to those scripts for the rest of our existence. At some point, we got to go back to scripture and say, wow, there's something deeply 
utilitive here. The existential meaning of the judgment is wow, it's so powerful. And yeah, people have misused this, but we got to put that aside. We got to stop being the victim and say, you know what? You might have scripted this in a way that damaged me, but I'm not going to be controlled by that. I'm going to take this beautiful narrative, this beautiful revelation of the investigative judgment, the pre-advent judgment, whatever you want to call it, and I'm going to write a new story, a story of liberation, a story of cosmic justice, a story of healing. And I think that's what we need today as, as a movement. We need to reframe this, this perspective in a gospel-centered, Christ-centered way that interacts with the very real need for social and civic redemption and healing. But anyways, let me move on before that becomes the main topic of today, because it's not the main topic of today. Um, another thing is, unlike many of the Protestants who abandoned historicism, um, which is the historical Protestant method of interpreting prophecy, Adventists have hung on to this method. Uh, and it makes sense within our worldview, because, for example, if God longs to dwell with us and is always intimately involved with humanity in time and history, then preterism and futurism don't make any sense within that. Because in preterism, uh, God's divine interventions in history kind of ended uh, you know, around the first few centuries of Christianity. And in futurism, God's uh, involvement in history, there's been this giant pause throughout history. And then he's going to sort of pop back in again toward the end of time when the Antichrist shows up. Um, and so that, that doesn't really make sense within a worldview that says actually God's eternal posture is to be with people. So he's always here and he's always involved. And, and there's just no way that God would leave his people in the dark for that long. And so historicism embraces a view of God as present and active in the entirety of human history. Um, and preterism and futurism unwittingly deny that by positing most of the prophetic timeline to either the distant past or the distant future. So it doesn't work within this sanctuary nature of God worldview. I suppose you can force it in there um, and, and you know, maybe kind of go for like a partial preterism or a partial futurism type thing and, and, and try and force it in there. Um, but there's also no denying that historicism fits really nicely with this. Um, now, of course, I don't have the time to, you know, do a continued analysis of all of this. I'm, I'm, this is just a, a sort of a, a scratch the surface layer that I'm putting here. But for Adventism, one thing is clear, and this is the point I really want to get across. God is love. Not only in Calvary, He is love in every part of Scripture. And so Adventism was able, through this lens, to do what the Arminian world never did. It defined the entirety of Scripture from the love of God into one cohesive system of thought and then took that story to the world with missions and schools and hospitals and medical and literature ministries and churches and humanitarian aid and publishing houses and more. And this is the reason why Adventism has a worldwide ecclesiological system. A congregational system means we can only tell our story sporadically without harmony of thought. A worldwide system means we can tell our story in a harmonious way to the entire globe. And this is also the reason why the concept of remnant church is so central to Adventist thought because it encapsulates the uniqueness of Adventism's narrative within the landscape of Protestant thought. And at the heart of this, what we find is the person of Jesus. He is the sanctuary embodied, right? Emmanuel, God with us, God wanting to dwell with us. 
He is the Lord of the Sabbath, our true rest, the door to heaven, the great high priest, the lamb and the advocate, the resurrection and the life. He is the second Adam, the truth and the way to the Father's heart. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father. The spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. And our favorite book as Advent is the book of Revelation begins with these words, a revelation of Jesus. So the love of God is our theme, you guys. The person of Jesus is our instrument. In Him, we find all of our meaning and purpose. In Jesus, the mission of Adventism to reveal the truth of God's character to the world is fulfilled. Jesus is not just part of our message. He is our message through and through. In Jesus, we find a healer. His desire to restore humanity is the only thing that gives meaning to our health message. In Jesus, we find the Alpha and the Omega. His eternal presence is the only thing that gives meaning to our prophetic message. In Jesus, we find the true Christ. And without the true Christ, the Antichrist is a useless topic. All of the fame the Antichrist has, it only has because there is a true Christ that the world is hungering for. In Jesus, we find our story and our significance as the remnant church is lost without the personhood of Jesus and the love of God He came to reveal. Now, of course, none of this means that Adventist theology is perfect. We have not discovered everything the Bible has to say on the love of God. We still have questions we can't answer and concepts we find difficult to explain. And we continue to grow and learn, not only from Scripture, but as I mentioned earlier, from our brothers and sisters in different Protestant traditions as well. Because God's Spirit isn't just working with us, it's working with everyone. And our picture of God's love and the great controversy continues to expand and evolve. But this is okay. Because for Adventists, our sanctuary view of God sets the foundation for the concept of what we historically refer to as present truth, which means that God is always revealing more truth as time goes by because God is involved in time and history. Sanctuary nature. So Ellen White could say this, Much has been lost because our ministers and people have concluded that we have had all the truth essential for us as a people. But such a conclusion is erroneous and in harmony with the deceptions of Satan, for truth will be constantly unfolding. For this reason, Adventists have historically refused to embrace creeds. Uh, Philosophically speaking, a creed is only compatible with a timeless God who is not progressively revealing more truth as human time advances. But a God who willingly enters into time in order to have relationship with us will continue to reveal himself bit by bit until the end of time. And so everything that makes Adventism unique can really be traced back to this sanctuary picture of an intimate and loving God who reveals himself to us always within the framework of his love. And while other Protestant traditions may embrace and proclaim the love of God with great passion, Adventism has more than just proclamations about the love of God. It has a robust story that reveals His love in every theme of Scripture. Big, middle, and little story. And so as a result, Adventism has almost like a magnet attracted all these doctrines to itself that celebrate the love of God. And in turn, it's built on them and discovered truths for today that haven't been expressed or discovered before. The sanctuary God who dwells among us, interacts with us, and condescends to us is in every step of the story the God that we find, not only in the cross, but all throughout Scripture. 
in every theme, in every teaching, in every mystery. And this includes the law, you guys. It includes judgment. It includes prophecy. It includes the war between good and evil. There, Adventism sees a beautiful being with a character of love unlike anything man could ever imagine. So I want to start wrapping this up now. Because... I don't know if it was in the last episode or the episode before that where I promised to touch again on some of Adventism's more unique uh, doctrinal ideas like the three angels' messages, the investigative judgment, our prophetic narrative. And, and I mentioned how each of these is ultimately rooted in non-Adventist thought. Uh, but some of you may have felt a little unsatisfied my, by my explanation then because it remains true that to some degree we are indeed the only ones who believe those frameworks in the way in which we express them. Uh, but I had to leave it there because I had to, you know, obviously I had to explain everything in today's episode first. But I, let me revisit that now um, and, and make my final observations on these more sort of eccentric aspects of our theology. Now, if you look at the most unique elements Adventism brings to the table, such as those doctrines I just mentioned, all of them are storylines. So unlike specific doctrines like Sabbath, death, or hell, doctrines that we share with many other Christians, the doctrines most uniquely ours are not specific or what I would refer to as point doctrines, but rather they are narratives. The three angels' message is a phrase that refers not only to Revelation 12, but to the entirety of Adventist theology and the war between good and evil. It's a story. The investigative judgment is a theme that develops out of the great controversy and flows out of a judgment process that includes Jesus' historic death, a present end time judgment, and the final great white throne judgment at the end of time. Again, it's a narrative of cosmic justice. Our prophetic narrative takes into account the flow of human history. Virtually every idea Adventism brings to the table is not a point doctrine, but rather a narrative theme that takes into account past, present, and future, just like the sanctuary. Which reveals not a God who is in some frozen, eternal, now timeless realm, but a God who is mysteriously, definitely not bound by time like we mortals are, but who is also deeply involved in human history. So yes, Adventism does have some weird theological narratives, but again, that alone isn't what makes it unique. What makes it unique is its presuppositions, which we derive from Scripture, and that set the foundation that enables us as a tribe to embrace the story that we tell. And so if I was to sort of summarize this the way I was summarizing Calvinism and Arminianism, you know, presupposition, interpretation, theology, um, it, it would look like this. So if you remember Calvinism is sort of presupposition, God's timeless nature, interpretation, there's, you know, no free will, um, theology, salvation is only for the elect. And then you have Arminianism, presupposition, God is love, interpretation, there must be free will, theology, God's salvation is for everyone. And so within Adventism, it would look something like this. Presupposition, the sanctuary. God is love in time. Historical. Interpretation. God's love is the interpretive lens for all of Scripture. Theology. God's law, gospel, prophecies, etc. all reveal His love. And maybe no one has summarized the purpose and mission of our tribe as well as Ellen White did when she wrote, It is the darkness of misapprehension of God that is enshrouding the world. 
men are losing their knowledge of his character. It has been misunderstood and misrepresented. At this time, a message from God is to be proclaimed, a message illuminating in its influence and saving in its power. His character is to be made known into the darkness of the world, is to be shed the light of his glory, the light of his goodness, mercy, and truth. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. Without Adventism, the Christian world would have two narratives to offer. A scary but whole Bible approach known as Calvinism or a loving but surface approach known as Arminianism. But in Adventism, we discover the first and only love of God whole Bible approach in existence. There simply is no other, you guys. This is why our church exists. It exists to communicate the only whole Bible approach to the love of God this world's ever known. It exists to proclaim Jesus with a clarity and a beauty that human ears have never heard. And so let me, let me make this really, really clear. Adventists who's listening to this podcast, if no one tells this story, who's going to tell it? Who's going to tell it? Now, as I wrap up, as I close, there does remain one glaring question. If everything I've said in this episode is true, why is Adventism then so non-loving to so many people? Why have our preachers tended to emphasize a scary picture of judgment, perfectionistic ideologies, and quite frankly, legalistic and man-centered theology? Why are so many of our churches cold and dead and judgmental and toxic and just horrible? Why? If everything I've said in this episode has any semblance of truth, then what is going on? Because we're not seeing this in our local churches. We don't see this in our history. We see the opposite. And the answer to that question is going to come in the next episode. <laughs> uh, I, maybe there's not a, as big a cliffhanger as the previous episode, but it is a cliffhanger. We're going to talk about that in the next episode. But until then, until then, I want to invite you to do this. I want to invite you. Let's celebrate Adventism, you guys. Let's, let's be proud of the story we tell. Because at the end of the day, the story that we tell isn't really about us. It's about Him. <laughs>